everybody to the Three Rivers Talk Show for another episode with the latest of your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Once again, your host Drew Vonsau here with you on a snowy Friday afternoon in Bethany, West Virginia. Starting with the football side of things, as it was announced yesterday, Ben Roethlisberger officially retired from football. An announcement that everybody knew was going to be imminent this offseason one that all Steelers fans had been anticipating, but it's a situation where it doesn't make it any less impactful, and it doesn't make it any less sad to hear the news that he's officially retired. And seeing as it came out about 10 o'clock yesterday morning, it's certainly not a great piece of news to start the day with. But... Nonetheless, it was a Hall of Fame career for Ben Roethlisberger, one that had a lot of highs, a good bit of lows, but ultimately very successful in the long run, a career that he is certainly proud of. Every single Steelers fan is thankful for, and hopefully in about five years, six years maybe, he will go go into Canton as a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's definitely a Hall of Famer. There's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. But it's just a question of does he get in on the first ballot or does he have to wait a couple in order to see himself getting in? And so now, of course, with that retirement official, the talk about who the Steelers' next quarterback is going to be is obviously spinning at a rate much higher than it was before the official retirement. As now Najee Harris was on a CBS football show a few hours ago to which he was talking about who the Steelers' next quarterback should be. And the names that he mentioned were Aaron Rodgers, Deshaun Watson, and Jimmy Garoppolo. Now, of course, I've already talked about Rodgers and how that situation could possibly play out. But Jimmy Garoppolo is a name that is rather interesting. He's someone that obviously left New England to get out of the shadow of Tom Brady, but has gone to San Francisco and really had up-and-down type of years in terms of what type of numbers and the quality of numbers that he's putting up. One year, Garoppolo will go out and look like a legitimate NFL starter, and then the next season he goes out and puts up a number that would be someone who is a lower-tier NFL starter, maybe even a fringe starter, would put up. Of course, Garoppolo has one more year on his contract before becoming a free agent. So the 49ers would have to be willing to move on from Jimmy Garoppolo, would have to be committed 100% to Trey Lance. But the Steelers would also have to find a way to 
work Garoppolo into their salary cap because Garoppolo's base salary for 2022 is $24.2 million. He's got a cap hit of $26,905,870. So his cap hit is even harder than what his base salary is. And the Steelers, they have a good bit of cap space, but someone like Garoppolo would come in and end up taking a huge chunk of it. And then, of course, Najee Harris had also mentioned Deshaun Watson, but his situation is ongoing. At this point, who knows ultimately when or if he will step back out onto a football field. And the thing with Deshaun Watson is, his base salary and cap hit are even higher than those of Garoppolo. Watson's base salary, $35 million. His cap hit, $40.4 million. Some teams don't even have $40 million in cap space, much less $40 million in cap space to spare for someone like Deshaun Watson. And as much as it pains me to say this the problem with the Steelers right now is that bringing in Deshaun Watson someone of that caliber rather isn't going to solve every single issue that they have it's not going to turn them from a team that went nine and seven nine seven and one rather to a Super Bowl contender in the blink of an eye yes the record will improve by a few games but there are so many other glaring problems with the Steelers, both offensively and defensively, that they're going to have to do more than just bringing in a legitimate quarterback, which is why you're seeing the Steelers now look into multiple options. You're hearing rumors of either drafting a rookie, someone who would have a low cap hit, signing a free agent that would have a lower cap hit or even just going with Mason Rudolph as someone who's already under contract, already a part of the current salary cap projection in terms of how much space the team is set to have. And then you fill fill in all of those other holes that the team has on both sides of the football. And then... When you do that, you're able to get the best evaluation of someone like Mason Rudolph or even Dwayne Haskins, whoever would be the winner of that battle. And then you can say, okay, well, with this situation, given that we have provided them as many options as possible to succeed and have set them up in the best position to win us games, can they do it? If the answer is yes, then you have your quarterback. If the answer is no, then you go out and acquire one. And I understand that if Aaron Rodgers wants to continue to play football, that decision might have to be made without really getting a long look at Rudolph or Haskins as a starter. But at the same time, the Steelers shouldn't be so quick to jump the gun and ultimately bring in Rodgers just because they see the name out there in free agency. If he doesn't want to come to Pittsburgh, then you don't bring him in. If signing him prevents you from filling three other glaring holes in the team, both offensively or defensively, then I would rather those three get fixed than just the one at quarterback. Because that is ultimately going to make the Steelers an all-around better team, and an all-around better team is going to stand a much better chance to be a contender than someone with Aaron Rodgers, but no defense to show for it. And it's not that the Steelers don't have any defense, but there were times, especially in terms of being able to stop the run, in which the Steelers' defense was glaringly weak. And I don't care how good of a quarterback you have. If your defense can't stop the run, you're not going to even get to the Super Bowl, much less win it. And speaking of the Super Bowl, we're going to take a look now at the teams that are one step away from getting there in terms of 
those who are at the AFC and NFC championship games. On the AFC side, those teams are Cincinnati, Kansas City. And the NFC side, it's the Los Angeles Rams and San Francisco 49ers, a battle of the NFC West. Now, I mentioned this on my personal Twitter, something that bothers me about these current four teams being the last four. Bengals being a direct rival of the Steelers in the AFC North. If the Bengals go on to win the Super Bowl, that Cincinnati fan base is not going to shut up about it. And all you will hear about until next season and probably even until the next Super Bowl is how good of a quarterback Joe Burrow is. And don't get me wrong. Joe Burrow is a phenomenal quarterback. But let's be honest here. It took the Bengals having to go 2-14 and 14 to have the number one overall pick to bring in Joe Burrow. The Steelers organization would never see themselves be that bad to even get close to being 2-14. and 14. Much less being there and having a number one overall pick. Then you have Kansas City, who has been dominant over the last few years in the AFC. You have Patrick Mahomes, who isn't necessarily a bad quarterback by any means. Arguably the best in the league at this point. But when you have his wife and brother who bring this negative image to his name, then that kind of overshadows the effects of him winning a Super Bowl, especially when you see the videos like last week in the game against Buffalo when his wife and brother were in a heated suite spraying champagne down onto cold fans sitting outdoors celebrating. I don't care if they asked to be sprayed in champagne or not. The fact of how cold it was last weekend across the country And you are going to spray somebody with champagne while you're sitting in a heated indoor suite is just wrong. It's absolutely wrong. And so for that reason, I don't want Kansas City to win the Super Bowl because of those two, because of their antics and how, for lack of better words, idiotic they are. Not because I don't like Patrick Mahomes, not because I don't think the Chiefs are deserving of a Super Bowl, but because of those two and those two alone. And you may be listening to this thinking, well, it has to be based on what they do on the field. But at the same time, when you take a look at Patrick Mahomes as a quarterback, those two off the field are heavily associated with him. And so then the team and Mahomes himself are guilty by association. So then on the NFC side, you have Rams and 49ers. The 49ers, I don't want them to win the Super Bowl because if they win the Super Bowl, then they are tied with the Steelers for six Super Bowls. It's bad enough New England has already tied the Steelers and then jumped above the Steelers. Rather, I take that back. New England still tied with the Steelers. Tom Brady as an individual ahead of the Steelers with seven. Much less having the 49ers in there as well. So they are out. And then the Rams are really the only team left. And again, I wouldn't have a problem with the Rams winning a Super Bowl. I think that would be something unique. It would give Matt Stafford his first ring after suffering through years of misery in Detroit. 
the Rams brought him in knowing they needed an upgrade over Jared Goff at quarterback to be a Super Bowl contender, and they went out and did so. And also a credit to them for having a strong trade deadline. They went out and got Von Miller from the Broncos. They were able to sign Odell Beckham Jr. after Baker Mayfield had a falling out with him. Those are arguably two of the biggest in-season acquisitions in NFL history, and their significance will grow even more if the Rams are able to go on and win the Super Bowl. That's something that would quantify this legacy even more for the Rams. It would be more impactful of, or would show how much of an impact those free agent acquisitions had. So, over the last three weeks, if you would say that, of the NFL season, I think from a Steelers perspective, you have to be a Rams fan. There's no way about it. Now, obviously, in terms of the AFC Championship, I would much rather see Cincinnati win over Kansas City. But I don't want the Bengals to win the Super Bowl. In terms of Rams and 49ers, obviously, if the Rams win the NFC Championship, they are who I want to win the Super Bowl. If the 49ers win that game, then at that point, it's like asking me if I want to be shot or stabbed. Because it's a situation where it's a no-win for the Steelers, and it's a no-win for the fan base. Do you root for Kansas City, who has been a dominant AFC threat, a team that is going to have the potential over the next decade to continue to catch you in terms of Super Bowl rings and championships? Do you root for a team like Cincinnati, who is a division rival, that after years of absolutely being awful, now has a competitive roster for one of the first times in the last 30 years and are going to be a division threat for the next decade plus? Well, the only other option would be the 49ers, a team that would then tie your team with the number of Super Bowls. So again, it's a no-brainer for me that as a Steelers fan, Rams are the pick that you should be supporting to win the Super Bowl. And again, obviously, I can't sit here and tell you who to root for because everybody's going to have different reasons. A graduate of LSU, even though they might be a Steelers fan, are going to want the best for Joe Burrow, somebody who used to live in New England and was a really big fan of Jimmy Garoppolo, may want the 49ers. There's all sorts of different reasons like that as to why some Steelers fans may ultimately end up supporting someone other than the Rams. But for me personally, Rams all the way in Sean McVay we trust. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, we're looking at the Pittsburgh Penguins in terms of the Jeff Carter extension, along with other pending free agents and their contract situations along with a look in at the last two games for the Penguins, a win and a loss right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
And we're back on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Penguins. As Jeff Carter has officially signed a two-year extension with the team, an average annual value of $3.125 million that will go into effect at the conclusion of this season. We'll keep him in Pittsburgh through the 2023-2024 season. Of course, Jeff Carter has came in to be a third-line center for the team, has absolutely created a spark, one that the Penguins would have not been easily able to replicate. And this isn't officially signed a two-year extension with the team, an average annual value of $3.125 million that will go into effect at the conclusion of this season. We'll keep him in Pittsburgh through the 2023-2024 season. Of course, Jeff Carter has came in to be a third-line center for the team, has absolutely created a spark, one that the Penguins would have not been easily able to replicate. And this isn't a slight to Teddy Bluger because Teddy Bluger is a very strong fourth-line center. Of course, he's not in the lineup currently because of recovering from a broken jaw. But the thing about Jeff Carter is that he gives the Penguins a legitimate trio of centers. Someone behind Crosby and Malkin. Someone that the team hasn't had since Nick Benino. And... When you think of Nick Benino, you think of the HPK line, you think of winning Stanley Cups. That is what the Penguins need to be a cup contender. And now they have it with Jeff Carter. Three legitimate centers. Of course, I've said already many times in shows past, you have to be able to roll four lines to be a cup contender. Of course, all four lines don't and necessarily won't have the same level of skill. But you have to be able to be comfortable going with four lines. If you get into a game and it's late, you're down by a goal, and then you opt to only send out three lines, that's a different story. But a team should be going into a game saying, if our fourth line is out there on the ice, even if it's against the opponent's first line, we are confident that they could find a way to put a puck in the back of the net, and we're confident that they, our guys will keep them off the scoreboard. If that is not the answer, then the fourth line needs upgraded and a variety of changes to it. But, of course, Jeff Carter will be centering the third line. And the thing about Carter, too, is that he provides flexibility. So, hypothetically, with Brian Boyle in the picture now, along with someone like Redeem Sahorna, who has had his fair share of appearances so far this season, so technically six centers in the mix. If the Penguins are short with wingers, then they slide Carter out to a wing, and they can either play Zahorna as a fourth-line center and move Bluger up. They can play Boyle as a fourth-line center, move Bluger up. They have some flexibility there with Carter. And, of course, Carter is primarily a right-winger when he doesn't play center. But if push comes to shove, I would not be surprised to see if Jeff Carter could play left wing. I would 100% be believing in him to go out there and produce a NHL-level caliber game on the left wing. But for the time being, Jeff Carter is the third-line center. We're happy as Penguins fans to have him around for another two years as the Crosby, Malkin, Latang era continues to unfortunately dwindle in terms of number of seasons remaining with them.
Now, yesterday Ron Hextall also talked about other possible players that are looking at extensions. Malkin Latang, the biggest names that come to mind. And, of course, Hextall commenting on the fact that they are committed to working with Latang, working with Malkin to get a deal done. And it's something that is very important. Obviously, you want to try and keep that core together with Crosby, Malkin, and Latang. Hextall noting that they are top priorities for the team. But then one of the other comments that Ron Hextall made was that if players are solely looking for the highest dollar amount, that they won't get it in Pittsburgh and they will have to go elsewhere. Now, when you have someone like Latang, someone like Malkin, who deservedly could get much more money than what they're being paid, Crosby, of course, in this same boat, but his contract isn't up for negotiation yet. He's still under contract after this season. But when it comes to Malkin and Latang, those two could get more money elsewhere. And then it becomes a debate of, do you want money or do you want to stay loyal to a city that you've been here your whole career and one you know you can compete for a Stanley Cup? Because a lot of times the teams that are going to be able to offer you the most money aren't going to be the teams that are competing for a Stanley Cup due to having excessive cap space with either players on minimum salary deals, rookie contracts, etc. And of course, when you combine all of that together, you get a team like the Buffalo Sabres or the Arizona Coyotes. Two teams that have seemed like they've been at the bottom of the NHL for, oh, I don't know, it's quite as quite as long as I can remember. So, the Penguins are, of course, going to make an effort with Mokin and Latang, do everything in their power to keep them in the team, but nothing is official until Mokin and Latang put pen to paper. Now, the Penguins, they do also have other restricted free agents, Brian Rust in that group, Evan Rodriguez in that group, and again, those guys as well going to be players like Malkin, like Latang, where they're going to either have to choose between loyalty and wanting to win a cup or getting the most money. Ryan Rust, after strong seasons, several seasons, I should say, could be due to get a massive pay grade, but he could be willing to not be paid as much to stay in Pittsburgh. Evan Rodriguez, with as strong of a season as he has had at this point, of course, cooling off a little bit right now, nobody was ever expecting him to continue at the pace that he once was, is someone that could see a bit of a pay grade, pay raise, I should say, and then he ultimately has to decide, like Rust and the others, what he wants to do. If the players want to be paid as much as possible, I understand their decision. They work hard for it. They absolutely earn it. If they want to stay loyal to Pittsburgh, take less money to try and win a Stanley Cup with Crosby and Malkin and Latang, pending they stay in Pittsburgh as well, then, again, I completely understand it and I respect their decision. And so, depending upon how all of that plays out, Ron Hextall is going to have some gaps to fill in terms of possible minor league players, possible free agents that the team could go out and bring in, and it's going to be tight down the stretch for 
Hextall to get these deals done before players start to begin to enter free agency. And regardless of who stays and who doesn't, the Penguins are, and Ron Hextall is going to have to work to try and get players that are going to produce consistently. Of course, Denton Heinen and Brock McGinn, they were two of Hextall's biggest free agent signings this past offseason. Right now, Denton Heinen, nine goals, nine assists on the season. Brock McGinn, ten goals, five assists. McGinn seems to be, in my opinion, much more consistent than Denton Heinen. Of course, with McGinn, you'll go a couple of games anywhere from between two to eight without him scoring, but he will consistently find a way to put a puck in the net every handful of games. Whereas if you look at someone like Danton Heinen, today's date, January 28th, Danton Heinen has not scored a goal since December 19th. And this was the Danton Heinen that had the strong, absolutely incredible start for the Penguins, scoring three times in the first three games. By the end of October, already had four goals under his belt. If he doesn't have that electric start, then he may only see himself with five goals. So, Ron Hextall will need to get more guys like Brock McGinn than Danton Heinen, unless Heinen can start to solidify himself as a much more consistent option. And then looking back at the last two games for the Pens in terms of thoughts and analysis on them, we'll start with last night's game against the Seattle Kraken. Of course, very disappointing that the Penguins couldn't tackle in the second point, giving Seattle their first ever overtime win as a franchise. But I also have to give them credit because they outshot the Penguins 29-24. Philip Grubauer had a very impressive game in net for Seattle, something that when the Penguins went into Seattle, I remember talking about specifically that they would have to test Grubauer. Of course, nobody was expecting Grubauer to be chased from the game five minutes in after giving up three goals. This Grubauer was much more like what we were going to expect the last time around and what the Kraken expected from Grubauer when they ultimately decided to make him a part of their franchise. And sometimes that happens to a team like the Penguins where they may be in five minutes in after giving up three goals. This Grubauer was much more like what we were going to expect the last time around and what the Kraken expected from Grubauer when they ultimately decided to make him a part of their franchise. And sometimes that happens to a team like the Penguins where they may be outshot, they may have the higher percentage in terms of quality shots and scoring chances, but you get a goaltender who's feeling themselves and having a strong night like Grubauer, and you ultimately come out on the wrong end of a decision. It's going to happen, but the Penguins just have to find a way to get more shots, especially when they only had 24, an average of 8 per period, and you look back at the game a couple of nights ago in the National Hockey League between Columbus and Calgary. Calgary in that game had 62 shots on goal. The Flames winning that game 6-0 over the Blue Jackets. And Calgary had 62 shots on goal. They averaged almost 21 shots a period. First period, 16, and then 23 in the second and third. You look at Columbus and their numbers, nine shots in the first, eight in the second, six in the third. 
obviously I'm not expecting the Penguins to be able to go out there and put up 62 shots a game every single night. That's unrealistic. But what they can do is see themselves consistently getting into the low to mid-30s, somewhere in the 30 to 35 range. If the Penguins went out there against Seattle and they put up 34 shots on goal, outshot Seattle, and still lost that game in overtime, then you tip your cap to Philip Grubauer, he stole the game, and you move on to Detroit tonight. Now, as for the Coyotes game, that one was a little bit more of a toss-up. It was rather the first two periods being a toss-up as the score was tied 0-0 after one. It was tied 2-2 after two. Of course, a strong third period showing for the Penguins pushed them over the edge as they took the final 24-1 to win 6-3, but the Penguins outshot Arizona 36-16. So that was a game where the Penguins arguably should have won by a much bigger margin. They were by far the better team, but Arizona took their chances and punished the Penguins when necessary. And you have to give credit to the Coyotes goaltender, Karel Vemenka, because of how he went out there and performed the first two periods. Of course, Arizona opting not to use Darcy Kemper in that game. And had Kemper played, it may not have been as big of a blowout as it was in the third period. But the Penguins knew they had a job to do, and they went out there and took care of business in the third period. And after last night's game against Seattle, the Penguins absolutely have to respond tonight against Detroit. And I wouldn't be so sure about this one because Casey DeSmith is set to be in goal on the second end of a back-to-back. Now, I understand Detroit is a team that's below 500, but then again, so was Seattle before and after last night's game. And as we're all aware, DeSmith hasn't necessarily been playing the greatest as of late. So hopefully the Penguins are able to rally around DeSmith maybe bail him out a time or two in order to try and give him a little bit more confidence. But nonetheless, it's dismissing goal tonight for the Pens as they take on the Detroit Red Wings. The game scheduled for 7 o'clock locally can be found on AT&T Sportsnet Pittsburgh. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, looking at the baseball side of things for a final segment as the contract bargaining agreement talks slowly but surely make progress along with Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens once again missing out on the Hall of Fame here on the Bethany Online Radio.
back on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the baseball side of the show in terms of looking at the contract bargaining agreement slowly but surely making progress. Of course, this being reported a couple of days ago, earlier in the week, there was no agreement whenever the Players provided a counter-proposal. Jeff Passan reporting that nobody expected the deal to be done, but the Players Union made a broad proposal that included removing some pieces of its past offers. So they're attacking from a much broader scale, and then we'll slowly start to work on the nitty-gritty details. And this being reported Monday, while I was on the air, actually, after the baseball segment had already been discussed, and then they ultimately met again the next day for more negotiations. So it was a bit of a step forward. So then the following day, the talks continued. The league and the owners agreed to parameters for a pre-arbitration bonus pool for top 30 players based on the statistic of war, wins above replacement, looking at how valuable a player is to their team. So that is going to prove to be beneficial for the young and upcoming stars of the game as they will get more money in their pre-arbitration years. But where the sides were different on that was that the players wanted $105 million for that bonus pool. The league was only willing to offer $10 million. So it's just finding a dollar amount in the middle by in the middle, not necessarily meaning right in the middle between 10 and 105, but somewhere between those two figures. And then the league offered to raise the minimum salary to 615. Originally, in the last agreement, it sat around 560,000 with the players wanting it to be a minimum of 775000 And the league has also willingly agreed to forego their change to arbitration. Now, the thing is, is that this is where the progress comes in. They agreed to the pre-arbitration pool. They are agreeing on something finally. They have common ground. They will settle the dollar amount. That is a fraction of the worry in terms of whether or not they will agree to things. If they can agree to big concepts like that pre-arbitration pool, the little details will slowly fall into place. And once they slowly start to fall into place, then it will rapidly kind of pick up. And before you know it, the CBA will be signed by both the union, the players, and we will have baseball back once again. Of course, there's still a handful of things in terms of what they have to still agree on, but they have to continue negotiations. No date has been given yet in terms of when those negotiations will continue to happen, but you know that teams are wanting to get down to spring training, so they will be in contact with the owners. They will be in contact with the player reps, urging them to get it done as quickly as possible because, let's face it, next Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, I should say, starts February. Players, particularly pitchers and catchers, begin reporting somewhere between 
the 15th and the 18th usually, depending upon what day of the week those dates fall. And then every single other player, infielders, outfielders, designated hitters, if you would throw them in their own separate category, they all arrive a few days later. And then by the end of February, beginning of March, that is when spring training games begin. So this time a month from now is when we should be getting spring training baseball. And unfortunately, that is not known right now if we will get that. It's appearing more and more likely that we will. And even if it means there's less spring training games than normal, something will still come of it. Now, what ultimately hurts all of the teams because of the lockout is that it's going to be a quick turnaround between when this CBA is signed and when players start to report to spring training. So if a player currently isn't signed, then they are going to be put at a disadvantage because they will arrive to spring training late. They'll have to get acclimated to being in whichever city in Florida or Arizona. They'll have to get adjusted to being on the new team, new coaching staff, and try to get themselves back up to game speed. So that was in part why you saw all of these frenzies right before the CBA of last season expired so that teams had that comfortable feeling going in knowing that they didn't have pieces that they absolutely needed to get. Of course, the days leading up to the start of spring training, I expect to be a frenzy as well in terms of player signing because what you're not going to see is the players and owners agree to a CBA, say hypothetically here, say they agree to it on February 16th. They're not going to tell pitchers and catchers, you've got 24 hours to report to Bradenton or Clearwater. They're not going to do that. They will give them probably about a week to get ready to head down. So that week, or however many days, between when the CBA is agreed upon and when pitchers and catchers report, it's going to be chaos in terms of more players signing physicals being done. But as I said, we're getting closer and closer, slowly but surely, to getting baseball back. Nobody wants to miss games, players, owners, fans, Nobody wants there to be a shortened season. And so they will now, as the season gets closer, the talk, are, the talks are going to pick up. The pace in which they have them is going to accelerate until they ultimately force a deal to be done. And then looking at also this week in the baseball world, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens missing out on the Hall of Fame this being the last time both of them are eligible for the Hall of Fame ballot, they will not be in the Hall of Fame. Now, each of them had been on the ballot for 10 years and did not get enough of the votes to make it in any of those 10 years. Of course, Clemens and Bonds, along with Kurt Schilling even, three of the biggest names in baseball. But it's not even a question of the fact that they didn't get in because of potential performance-enhancing drugs. They are not in, particularly Bonds and Clemens, they are not in the Hall of Fame because of being rude and arrogant to reporters who are the ones that vote on who gets into the Hall of Fame. First of all, reporters should not be the ones voting on who gets into the Hall of Fame. There should be a specific committee, and this goes for all sports, a specific committee within each league's commissioner's office even if it's its own separate branch, 
in the league headquarters for sure. Each league should have a committee specifically designed to pull who should be going into the Hall of Fame. And of course, look at statistics, individual statistics, gold gloves, silver sluggers, MVPs, Rookie of the Year, all of those different awards. Their war wins above replacement. We talked about that already. They're just overall statistics. ERA, batting average, home runs, RBIs, whip, strikeouts, whatever it may be. There has to be a separate committee, as reporters should not be the ones sending players to the Hall of Fame in any league. That is objective number one. Now, in terms of Bonds, Clemens, Schilling missing because of not necessarily being the nicest and coming off as arrogant and rude and not willing to talk to reporters, there has to be some sort of compromise there. Yes, there are times where players are required to do interviews. There are also times where players are not required to do interviews. If a player doesn't want to talk to you, you can't force them to talk. In which case, you just move on and you find somebody that's willing to talk. But, obviously, them being big-name players, they're going to be in the spotlight. Reporters are going to want to interview them more often than not. And so, you have to also understand the player side of it, of not wanting to constantly be interviewed, not wanting to constantly deal with having reporters in your face asking a question. And whether it's a reporter a broadcaster, whoever it may be, they cannot be surprised when a coach or a player even doesn't want to talk to them. If, Especially if they've talked to members of the media a lot in the past or as of late. But at the same time, them being rude or arrogant at times has no bearing on their ability to play baseball. The Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, is not a popularity contest of who answered the most questions at press conferences, who was the nicest in terms of talking to members of the media. The Baseball Hall of Fame is designed to have the best hitters, best pitchers, best fielders in the game, in the history of the game, showcased and having their legacy last forever in Cooperstown, New York. How they treat reporters has nothing to do with it. And as I said already, there is no way in hell reporters should be voting in baseball or in any league for a player to go to the Hall of Fame. Nobody should be voting unless it's a committee doing a vote when there's a toss-up between a handful of players. No reporters, no teams, and absolutely not no fans. And I have the same stance when it comes to all-star game appearances, Pro Bowl appearances. Those same committees that could pick Hall of Famers for each league, they would also be tasked with all-star games picking the true best of the best. I understand teams and the leagues, they like fans voting because it creates engagement and different things like that. But as we've all seen over the past five years, every single All-Star Game Pro Bowl turns into a popularity contest. You get guys there who have absolutely no reason being there. You get players who are well beyond their prime, can't do anything close to what a much younger player does, but because he's not on a big market team, he doesn't have the right name, or because he's not popular, he's not playing in a Pro Bowl or an All-Star game, and it's wrong. All-Star games and Pro Bowls are not popularity contests. They are to showcase the league's best of the best, and that's across the board, not just baseball, not just football, hockey, or basketball, or even MLS with soccer, that is all of them combined. They all should have that mentality, and they all need to change it. 
Once again, thank you for tuning in here on the Three Rivers Talk Show this afternoon. I hope you all have a great rest of your day. Enjoy the weekend while staying warm and tune in on Monday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates.